Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you, and enjoy the following message. Have you ever noticed that most of our what-if scenarios never actually pan out? We spend hours, sometimes days and weeks, anxious and worried about things that never actually come to pass. But every once in a while, our what-if scenarios actually do come to pass, and the what-if turns into what now? That's where Joshua is going to find himself at the outset of chapter 10. His what if turns into what now. And we, the people of God, have a great deal to learn from his faith-filled words and actions when this happens to him and the people of Israel. Now, we saw back in chapter 9 that Joshua and the leaders acted rashly without consulting the Lord, and they made a covenant with the people of Gibeon. Now, the people of Gibeon deceived the leaders of Israel. They convinced them that they were from a faraway country, that they did not, in fact, live in the promised land right where the Israelites were supposed to be settling. They deceived them, and that upset the Israelites because they understood that their calling from God was either to wipe out or to move out all of the people that were in the promised land for their sin and rebellion against God. But of course, what's done is done. Joshua and the leaders did, in fact, make a covenant with Gibeon and promised not to destroy them. So now here in chapter 10, the king of Jerusalem, he has already heard that Israel has captured Jericho and Ai, and now this information comes to him that one of the peoples living right around him has made a peace treaty, has made a covenant with Israel. And in his mind, this is bad for a lot of reasons. For one thing, Gibeon is a large city, as the text says, and it's filled with warriors. But also, if the Gibeonites defect effectively to Israel and nobody stands up to them for doing that, then he realizes that all of his other neighbors might also make a peace treaty with Israel and leave him and his people standing alone in Jerusalem. Now he's got to defend himself, not just against the Israelites, but against all of his neighbors as well. And so he decides an immediate, clear answer, a message has to be sent. If you make peace with Israel, the rest of us will declare war on you. So the king reaches out to four other kings in the vicinity, and he asks them to join forces against Gibeon. Now, this is good military strategy because five armies fighting against one army is is just good odds, but it was also very good political strategy because there's no doubt that the king figured that if he went and attacked Gibeon by himself, then Israel is probably likely to say, okay, these are our new allies. We need to come to their defense, and now he has to fight both of those armies. But if he rallies four other kings and four other armies, and it's five against one, there's a much greater chance that Israel is going to say, you know what? We've only been in alliance with these people for a few minutes. I think we're just going to stay out of this conflict. 
It's not worth our time. It's not worth the potential loss of soldiers. We're just going to stay out of this. And I mean, just put yourself in Joshua and the leader's shoes for a minute here. Haven't you ever wanted a convenient way to get out of something that you agreed to do? I think we've all been there before. And the reality is Joshua and the leader should have never entered into a covenant with Gibeon to begin with. The people were upset with them for doing that. So here's the convenient way to kill two birds with one stone. They just back off and they let these other armies attack and wipe out Gibeon. Now the Gibeonites, who are people dwelling in the promised land, are wiped out. They don't have to fight that battle. And now they're no longer responsible to uphold their end of the agreement because they're gone. That would have been a very convenient way to take care of that problem. But friends, that's a prime example of keeping the letter of the law without honoring the spirit of the law. And our God is not just a promise maker. He is a promise keeper. So he's not looking for loopholes and ways to get out of promises that he's made to us. And so we shouldn't be looking for loopholes and ways to get out of promises that we have made to other people either. So when the Gibeonites call out to their new allies, the Israelites, Joshua and the leaders, they immediately respond to help them. Take a look at verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. You see that they don't ignore the call. And they don't just send a handful of troops that way to kind of make it look like they were lending a helping hand when really they were doing nothing. No, they bring everybody. It says that he and all the people of war go up with him, all the mighty men of valor. And there's little doubt in my mind that as the soldiers are marching toward this conflict, that some of them, if not all of them, are wondering, are we walking straight into AI 2.0? I mean, think about that situation. When Akan sinned by taking some of the devoted things, and Joshua and the leaders failed to consult God, then when they went to go attack that little city of Ai and their small army, God disciplined them by causing them to lose that conflict. So now they're not fighting against a little city and a little army. They are fighting against five armies. So the question in their minds has to be, is God going to bring defeat as a disciplinary measure for the foolish decision of the leaders? But look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Isn't the Lord amazing? His kids do something dumb. And instead of turning his back on them, he says, don't worry, I've got you. I'm going to take care of this. Essentially, Joshua could have compounded the error by making a covenant, making these promises, and then going back on them, but he doesn't. He shouldn't have said yes in the first place, but he did. And our God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God, and so our yes should always be yes. And God honors that. He honors the fact that they told these people that they would make a covenant with them. In spite of the fact that it was a mistake, in spite of the fact that they should have never done that to begin with. 
Friends, what an encouragement to us that God doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us when we are faithless or foolish. And when we are tempted to be impatient with other people in our lives, we would do well to just remember God's inexhaustible patience toward us for all of the times that we do these same exact kinds of things. We get ourselves into messes and God gets us out of them. So Joshua and the army march all night long to catch these five armies by surprise. They arrive at dawn. God throws them into a panic and Israel strikes them down for miles as they retreat. And on top of that, God causes these huge hailstones, which we now have personal experience with in the last few months here. He causes these huge hailstones to fall from the sky. And the text says that more people died from those than from the attack itself. But some of the men are escaping in the retreat, and that could be a problem because they could hide overnight and then regroup and then attack Israel again the next day. So Joshua, he prays what could only be called an absurd, audacious prayer, something that only a child would pray or someone with childlike faith. He prays that the sun and the moon would stand still in their tracks. And what's amazing about this is that the text says that God not only heard Joshua's prayer, he heeded the prayer. That could be translated obeyed. He obeyed the prayer. So look at the full context again, verses 13 and 14. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. No day like it before or since. When you think about how remarkable this occasion is. Your mind goes to these other places in scripture where God has done these miraculous things. So when the prophet Elijah prays for the rain to stop for three years, he prayed that prayer in response to God's command to do so. And when he prayed that it would rain again, he did that in response to God's command to do so. So in a lot of these other miraculous instances like this, God is commanding these things to be asked. But God never tells Joshua, pray for the sun and the moon to stand still. Joshua just does it. And God listens to him. And the sun and the moon stand still for about a whole day. And there are plenty of people who look at this passage in the same way they look at the Red Sea crossing or the Jordan River crossing, and they say, you know, there's got to be some kind of natural explanation for this. There's got to be some scientific explanation for why the sun and the moon stand still. But I would simply reply that if God can create the world out of nothing, if he can take on flesh and add humanity to his deity, If he can rise again from the grave, then stopping the sun and the moon in their tracks for a day is no big deal to God. 
if you believe in the God of the Bible, then no miracle is problematic. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So this verse 15 here serves as kind of a concluding statement to the general description of the day's events. And our narrator wants to zoom in on some key details. So when we see verse 15 and Joshua returns and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal, that's kind of like the concluding statement to this whole day. But he wants to zoom in on some specific things that happened, and that's what he's going to do in verses 16 through 27. So let's pick up there together. Verse 16, these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machkeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machkeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machkeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. So after these kings realize that they're defeated, they go and they run, they hide in this cave. And somebody rats them out, tells them where they're hiding. And so Joshua and the men, they go roll these big stones over the mouth of the cave. They want them to stay there so they can continue pursuing their enemies so they don't escape into these other cities. So they strike most of them down. Then they return here. And Joshua has these kings brought out and they put their feet on their necks. And in the ancient Near East, that was a symbol of an army's complete victory over their enemies. And these proud kings thought that they could defeat both Israel and Israel's God. But this is a real teaching moment that Joshua is taking advantage of. He's saying that the God of Israel is greater than any earthly power. These kings who were often worshipped as deities in the ancient Near East, they now have the feet of men on their necks. And remember, in the ancient Near East, there's no greater dishonor than being shown the bottom of a foot or having the bottom of a foot touch you. And so this is a powerful moment. And look again at verse 25. Look at what Joshua says to them. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. 
For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. With Jericho destroyed and Ai destroyed and these five kings defeated, the people could see very clearly that God was keeping his promises to them, that he had not broken his word. They didn't have to fear. They could be strong and courageous because the Lord was with them and the Lord would fight for them. So Joshua is using this as a teaching moment for all of the people, a vivid illustration that God is going to keep his word even when circumstances may have suggested otherwise. So friends, this is a great time to zero in on Joshua and his growth as a leader. He was by no means a perfect leader. On two separate occasions, he acted rashly. He didn't consult the Lord. He made foolish choices that had very real consequences. But what's important to note is that Joshua was faithful. When he made the wrong call, he was quick to repent. When he made the right call, he was quick to credit the Lord for what he had done. You know, last week in the sermon, Pastor Chris pointed out that perfection is not a requirement for leaders. That's good news because then the church would be leaderless. Perfection is not required, but faithfulness is. And that's because one of a leader's primary jobs is setting an example. Leaders are to set an example in every area of life. That's true in the church. That's true in politics. That's true in business. That's true in the home. Leaders set an example for others to follow. So faithful leaders set a good example by doing the right thing consistently. But faithful leaders also set a good example by doing the right thing after they've done the wrong thing. By taking this opportunity to point the people back to God and to his faithfulness, Joshua is showing that he has learned from his previous mistakes, that he is growing as a leader. So this morning, whether you are a leader in the church or you're a leader in your home or the classroom on campus, in your business, wherever you are a leader, I want you to let Joshua be an encouragement to you today that you do not have to be perfect because you can't be. But what you can be and what you are called to be is faithful, continually setting God and his word before yourself and before others, just like Joshua did. Now in verse 26, we see that Joshua strikes down the kings and then hangs them on trees until evening, just like they did to the king at Ai. And at sundown, they throw their bodies back into the cave and they cover the mouth with those same stones. And this becomes the fifth monument, the fifth stone monument that we see in the book of Joshua. And if you recall some of these other monuments in the Jordan River or at Gilgal and all these other places, these stone monuments, the, the note that you have at the end of each one of these statements is they remain to this very day. Every one of these monuments was to remind Israel and to remind Israel's enemies of something important, something that was true about God and something that was true about what God had done through his people. So this pile of stones is a reminder that God will judge sin and rebellion against him. Remember, this whole battle went down because Israel came to the defense of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites acted deceitfully. They did the wrong thing in how they came to Israel. 
But I want you to remember what God promised to Abraham so many centuries before in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Take a look. He told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To stand against God's people is to stand against God himself. That is how closely God aligns himself with his people. You know, in the scripture, again and again, God compares his people to a bride, his bride. And he compares himself to the bridegroom, the husband. That's how closely God aligns himself with his people. And so although the Gibeonites employed deception to make this covenant with Israel, they still were saying, we don't intend to rebel against you or your God. We are submitting ourselves to you. And they received blessing. But these other kings continued to align themselves against God and against God's people, and they were cursed. So in the final section of this chapter, what the narrator is doing is he's summarizing the conquest of the rest of southern Canaan. So if you divide the promised land into two halves, this is what happens with the rest of the southern part of the promised land. And so Joshua and the Israelites capture all of these cities in the surrounding areas. You've got Machkeda and Libna. You've got Lachish, Getzer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. All of these different areas in the south are now conquered and under Israel's control. And so you have this summary statement starting in verse 40. Pick up there with me. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. I want you to go back in your mind a few chapters to the time that Israel was defeated at the hands of that small army at Ai. They suffered defeat at the hands of this really small army and then Joshua and the elders throw themselves down before the Lord. And let me put up on the screen for you what Joshua cried out to the Lord at that time. Take a look at Joshua 7. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Did you catch Joshua's big what if statement? Joshua cried out to the Lord and he basically said, what if all of these other armies gang up on us? What are we going to do then? We're all going to die and your reputation is going to be ruined. What if all these armies gang up on us? Well, every one of us can relate to Joshua's what if scenario. We have all been tempted to do this at various times in our lives. 
We have looked at a situation, we've looked at a set of circumstances, and then we started asking the what if questions. So what if I graduate and I don't have a job lined up? What if I'm single for the rest of my life? What if my spouse and I can't conceive? What if I never get chosen for that project or that promotion that I've worked so hard for at my job? What if my child struggles developmentally? What if my husband or wife changes? What if my husband or wife never changes? What if I lose my job? What if we can't pay our bills? All of us have been in these places where we have lived in the world of what if, with all of these what if scenarios. And a lot of the time, as we talked about at the beginning of the sermon today, a lot of our what if scenarios never come to pass. We spend all of this time anxious and worried for nothing. But friends, there are times where our what if scenarios do come to pass. And then what if turns into what now? And that's what happened to Joshua. That's what happened to Israel. Here's the good news. There isn't a single thing that happens to us in this life that God has not graciously ordained for his glory and for our good. Not one single thing. So what was Joshua's big fear? What if all of these other armies gang up against us? Well, they did. His nightmare scenario, the worst thing that could possibly happen in his mind comes to pass. Five kings unite their armies against him and against Israel and they come to attack. But look at how Joshua has grown as a leader and grown in faith. When his worst fears are realized, he rallies the troops, they march all night, they fight these five armies. No hesitation, no deliberation, no waffling. He just goes and does it. He confronts the fears head on. And look again at verse 42. This is just so incredible to me. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. God is all powerful and he is perfectly wise. What looked like doom for Israel, what looked like an unwinnable situation, God flipped on its head and he turned this into an occasion for a great victory where Joshua and Israel could conquer the entire southern half of the promised land at one time with one battle instead of having to go and march to all of these different places and engage all of these armies one at a time. God is all wise, all powerful. His ways are always best, no matter what it looks like. Church, I am the chief offender here. And so I want you to hear these words coming from a fellow struggler. Most of us live in the world of what if. We spend most, at least many days, worried about these things that may come to pass. 
And when we live in the world of what if, our problems seem very big and God seems very small. And a small God cannot help you with your big problems. So what that means is you have to help yourself somehow. You got to help yourself through frantic activity. You have to help yourself through manipulation. You have to help yourself through worry, which are all just different attempts to regain control of something that was outside of your control to begin with. If you're a Christian... I want to challenge you this morning to incorporate a new what if into your life. You may want to write this down. You don't have to. There's no condemnation for those of you who don't bring notebooks to church. But if you have one and you want to write this down, I would encourage you to do so. Here it is. What if I viewed everything that happened to me through the lens of faith? What if I viewed everything that happened to me through the lens of faith? What if you viewed everything from the smallest inconvenience, that flat tire, that dead cell phone battery, that crying child? What if we viewed everything from the smallest inconvenience to the biggest problem, the worst of our fears? What if we viewed everything that happened to us through the lens of faith? I think this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to teach the church in Romans 8. I just want you to be encouraged by these verses. Take a look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Remember, the context of this chapter is suffering. Paul says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look at verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ this morning, I want you to have the same confidence, the same assurance that the Apostle Paul had when you are confronted with these circumstances these what-if scenarios that seem overwhelming to you. If God has not withheld his only begotten son, he will not withhold any good thing from you, even things that on the surface, on the face, don't look like good things at all. He has already given you the best thing in his son. He won't withhold any other good thing. No believer should live in the world of what if. And so I feel for you as a a fellow struggler. I feel for you as a pastor. 
If you spend your days living in that world of worry and anxiety and what if, I've done that enough to know exactly what that feels like. And so I want to encourage you to challenge yourself, to challenge each other, to challenge me to ask a different what if question. What if we viewed everything that happened to us through the lens of faith? And if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning to consider asking yourself the same question. What if you viewed everything that has happened to you in your life through the lens of faith? Because I think what happens to a lot of people is bad things happen. You suffer. You go through very, very hard trials, very difficult times. And then you say, because this has happened to me, I cannot believe that God exists or I cannot believe that God is good and that he loves me. I just want you to consider asking the question this morning, what if you viewed everything that has happened to you through the lens of faith? Believe me, I'm not for a moment trying to minimize your suffering or trying to say that what you've gone through has not been awful. It very well could have been awful. All I'm saying to you this morning is that God is not ambivalent about your suffering. He loved you so much that he sent his son to suffer in your place and for your sins. Jesus took the whip and he took the nails and he went up to the cross and then down into the grave for you. He suffered greatly for you. So he cares about your suffering because he himself has suffered greatly. And I don't want you to write off God. I don't want you to write off faith in God because you have suffered greatly when God himself knows what it is to suffer, not for his own sins, not for his own mistakes, not for the mistakes of other people around him, but for your sins specifically. He, knew, he knows what it is to suffer because he suffered for your sin specifically. So I encourage you this morning to go to God with your pain. Go to God with your loss. Go to God with all of your what-if scenarios, knowing that Jesus Christ did not die and rise again to secure for you a comfortable life, but to secure for you an eternity of joy with him in heaven forever. Let's pray. Father, so many of us live in the world of what if. Some days are better than others, but we find ourselves again and again paralyzed, thinking about all of the scenarios that could potentially play out if this or that doesn't happen in our lives.
And I think at some level, we have to recognize that it's pride that leads us to do that. We think we know what is best for us. We think we know what's best for our country. We think we know what's best for our church. We think we know what's best for the neighborhood or the company or, or anything else in this life. We think we know best. So we worry and we're anxious that if our vision doesn't come to pass, that all is lost, all is ruined. So God, we come before you this morning and we humble ourselves. We acknowledge that you have perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge. We think we know best, but you actually do know best. So Lord, we ask for forgiveness when we have walked in fear and unbelief. And we pray this morning that you would increase our faith. Not because we've gotten better at wishful thinking, but because we have fixed our eyes on you, your character, your track record of keeping every promise that you've ever made, and that we would be able to walk in faith, seeing everything that happens to us through the lens of faith, believing that you bring all that you bring into our lives for your glory and for our good. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.